back in fictional frontiers. Star Wars is and has been one of the most influential myths of our age, not only because it reflects who we were, but also who we might be. And this has been accomplished by the embracing of archetypes like the Master and Apprentice. Claudia Gray, author of the novel Star Wars Master and Apprentice, is here to talk about her role in sharing the past of one of the saga's most iconic Master and Apprentice duos, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and the fun and challenges therein. Claudia, thanks again for taking the time. Welcome to Fictional Frontiers. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Claudia, before I actually get to the book, I want to talk about working in and with the Star Wars franchise. Can you walk us through the creative process? Because given the fact there's so much history and there's so many moving parts, I would hazard a guess it's kind of challenging, but at the same time, it's kind of fun as well. Um, you know, it's not as, as difficult as you might think, um, you know, because you do work with Lucasfilm, and and they have people who keep track of all of this, so I don't have to, which is especially valuable because they also know about the canon that's coming out that I don't know. Um, you know, I have no idea if an episode of Resistance is about to, you know, contradict something that I'm going to put out there in the near future. Uh, so they sort of stay on top of that. I've learned to ask questions early, like, is it okay if I go here? Is it okay uh, if we bring in the huts or whatever else? And I'll usually get a sense of, of where we can couch the story. And I try to do that before I get too far in, you know, to get mm-hmm. the parameters of, of where we can go. And that said, from that point on, the story, I really do get a lot of freedom, much more than I ever anticipated before I started writing Star Wars. It's funny, I wear many hats, and one of the hats I wear is serving as a transmedia director. So we have different intellectual properties we kind of have to juggle. And I have to confess, when I heard about the Lucasfilm Story Group, I kind of took that model and applied it to what we were working on. Uh, With respect to Story Group here, what's that creative process like as well, and how are those logistics laid out? Because I guess I'm being a little bit selfish here. I'd like to see what they do so I can kind of apply it myself as well. (laughs) Well, of course, I only know one uh, end of it, which is my end. Um, you know, it, it, it's a lot more informal and a lot more um, nerdy, I think, than most people think it is. Mm. I think there's this huge misperception kind of out there that Story Group is this bunch of, like, suit execs going, well, this needs to appeal to this demographic quadrant, you know, and it's not <laughs> like that at all. It's a bunch of people sitting around, you know, nerd fighting about what would be the best ship to be there, you know. Um, but it is very much just sort of what I said. I sort of throw out, like, what would, you know, can I go here, can I go there? And generally speaking, if I can't, they'll tell me why. Every once in a while I can't, and they can't tell me why. And that's very mysterious. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and they're, they're a great resource, too, because I've learned sometimes, you know, the first book with Lost Stars, I spent all this time digging through trying to look up specific ships. And now I know I can just ask, hey, what would be a great ship to have X? You know, they're like, oh, here it is, this thing. You know, and usually you can look up the design or even the blueprints online, which, you know, as a writer and a creator, to be able to draw from that kind of well, mm-hmm. you know, with, I mean, because literally now there's 40 plus years of the world's best artists and designers creating material for this and i get to i get to draw from that which is a huge resource but um 
yeah, like the greater organizational things, you'd have to ask them. I just know how it works with me, and with me, it really is very much getting to talk about what what Lego blocks go in in you know on the play table. So I don't feel so bad now because that's what we kind of do here. <laughs> we kind of nerd out and uh, we allow the creative juices to somewhat flow freely. And it's interesting you bring up the uh, expediency that's kind of embedded now in the process. I was watching this documentary, The Toys That Made Us, and there was a chapter mm-hmm. or an episode on the Star Wars toys. And it's insane how much they had to kind of go through and what they had to kind of kitbash to put things together. And it's nice to have... Mm-hmm the luxury to kind of just dial up someone and say, okay, well, what about this? What about that? Back in the day, they couldn't do that. Let me ask you this with respect to the saga itself. I'm good friends with Christy Golden, and mm-hmm. you talk about this love and this, you know, I guess infatuation. I, I want to say kind of this direct connection with the Star Wars saga. You have to be an, a fan of the saga in order to really do it justice. How were you first introduced to the saga? And I don't want you to reveal necessarily when you saw the film I'm always very reticent about telling people when I first saw Star Wars because obviously that reveals how old I was but uh, suffice to say I saw it in the theaters (laughs) yeah it's it's kind of depressing to me because I also saw it in theaters oh okay I think you were 17 that's what it said in the press materials but that's a story for another day no 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 cross that out that's not true I'm not quite there yet which is a really good age to have your relationship to reality forever warped. And uh, that's definitely what it did for me. I don't really remember much of my life before loving Star Wars and imagining things in that universe. Well, Claudia, let me ask you this. With respect to Lost Stars, it was so well received and it was your first go around working in the Star Wars saga with the Star Wars saga. Do you feel like it kind of laid the foundations for you to get acclimated it prepared you for works like master and apprentice you know i didn't have any thoughts uh, about that at the time and it's weird because i was a person back with the old eu the legends you know i bought a ton of the books you know i didn't actually have a timothy zahn altar but sort of spiritually i did (laughs) you know um and that somehow it never hit me how many people read star wars books like i didn't get it and I should have been a lot more nervous about Lost Stars, really, than I was. But all I thought was, like, oh, I get to sell off, you know, a Star Wars story. This is great, you know. Um, so, and I really had no idea of ever doing anything again. Like, at, at that point, it was just like, oh, this is this one really fun thing I get to do. And, um, yeah, I definitely was not anticipating the the turn that it would sort of create in in my career you know i mean i've always written my own stuff i continue to do so i always want to do so uh but star wars has both it really raises your profile um mostly for the also in ways but uh you know it's it's been it's been a real learning experience across the board well let's talk about qui-gon jinn and obi-wan kenobi Full confession here, if I had a chance to write anything in the Star Wars saga, these would be two of the characters I would choose. And another of my friends, I'm name dropping here, but another of my friends, Nydia Korafor, contributed to the Star Wars anthology book that was released a couple of years back, uh, the short story. That is stories. my favorite story in that entire thing. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> 
But, uh, you know, uh, Nettie chose the Dianoga, and we laugh about that. Why did you choose the Dianoga? But, uh, yeah, none that's the... now, like, my third favorite character in all of the, <laughs> the Dianoga. I'm like, yeah, it's like Princess Leia, Qui-Gon, the Dianoga. Well, that, sh- you know, that short story there was amazing, and it kind of, I think, set the stage for what's here. Um, when you were approached to tell a story about Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi, was that just kind of a natural extension of this, or was it a situation where you're like, you know, we want Claudia to write another book, and here's your pick of the litter? I know that was the process that was used in the anthology. Um, actually, it was a little bit different. For one, I've been, you know, as soon as it became apparent to me that I would be working on more Star Wars projects, I said that Qui-Gon was one of the characters I was most interested in, you know, and, and I kept saying so because I really wanted to work on that if that was ever going to be a thing that happened. Uh, and then um, when I was working on Leia, Princess of Alderaan, that mm-hmm. was sort of right when the anthology was being put together. And uh, unfortunately, I got fairly sick during the writing of mm. Princess of Alderaan. Uh, wound up having surgery. It's nothing serious. I'm fine. Good, good, good. But good. it did push the book a little late. And, um, you know, which meant by the time I got to the anthology, you know, pretty much all the characters had been picked. And they're like, I don't know if there's anything here. And I thought about it. And then I was like, you know who's in this movie that you don't know is in this movie? It's Qui-Gon. <laughs> and that was sort of a way in for me, both to writing Qui-Gon and finding something in the anthology that was a moment. Because I think I might have been like the 38th of 40 or something to, wow. to sign on just because I didn't have the time or the, you know, to, to put together any kind of a pitch or anything before that, because it's like, finish Princess Alderaan in a real hurry. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it, it, it did lead to this, uh, at least partly, and of course I'm hugely grateful for that. That's canon, right? I want to make certain that short story is canon, because I loved it so much. I think all the anthologies are sort they're sort of soft canon. I don't think okay. you can necessarily believe them until you see it somewhere else. Okay, okay. But I don't mind that. Uh, I feel like we need a little space to play, kind of, um, to have these sort of what-if scenarios a little bit. I hope it's canon. I think anything could become canon, but uh, let's, let's just make it canon in our hearts. Sounds good, sounds good. Well, let's talk about where our two lead characters are at the beginning of this novel, because it takes place quite a few years before Phantom Menace, and what I really, really love about this novel and I find fascinating is that we actually get to kind of see where and how they ended up in Phantom Menace because this, you know, the stage is set and characters are not fully formed when you first see them on the silver screen. Things happen in the past. So talk about where they are in this novel and how they got to the point they were in in the Phantom Menace. Um, where they are in this book, uh, you know, Obi-Wan is a teenager. He and Qui-Gon have been working together. And it's been a little rocky. And one thing the book says is that it's not weird for the Padawan-Master relationship to be a little rocky in the first years because, you know, you have people making huge life change in adolescence. Like, guess what? There's going to be, you know, a few rough spots. Um, and it's a huge life transition anyway. But quite on an Obi-Wan, the problems have lingered a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. they're not communicating the, the way that they need to communicate. They haven't sort of become a team in that in that most critical way and it's not because they don't appreciate each other each of them thinks very highly of the other but you know their 
there's something about the other that they just haven't figured out. And each of them, of course, being, because I felt like this was very in character for they are, each of them are blaming themselves instead of the other. Like, oh, it must be me, you know. You know, either I'm not a good Padawan or I'm not a good master. So they're there. And uh, meanwhile, Qui-Gon, sort of the main focus, he has this interest in the prophecies, Mm -hmm. the old Jedi prophecies, that not many Jedi share. However, he is still not in the place we're going to see him in the Phantom Menace, where he's an absolute literal believer. Uh, You know, I realized finally when I was digging into the book that that was sort of the critical story to tell. Like, why does Qui-Gon believe this? Mm -hmm. Why does he hold on to this kind of faith that is clearly an outlier among the Jedi? And that's sort of the core of what I wanted to work at in the book. I think what works so strongly and so well in this novel is the fact that we see these characters as very human. And it kind of reminds me of what happened in The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, the prequel saga. We heard about the Jedi from the original trilogy, and then we get Mm -hmm. to see that these characters are fallible and flawed. How important was that for you to kind of bring that into this book? Well, it's necessary. If you don't have, you know, if you have these perfect people in a perfect organization, you generally don't have a whole lot of story, you know. Um, You know, Star Trek did a great job of working with some of that, but, um, you know, in the Star Wars universe, things are generally a little bit more, um, they're a little more shaded, and it, it is a very black and white mythos in a lot of ways, Star Wars, the dark side, the light side, and yet, the characters within them and the questions are complicated and really always have been. Um, you know, there's a lot to, to say about things like why does Obi-Wan not immediately tell Luke the truth about his mm-hmm. dad, you know? Is Lando actually doing something so terrible in The Empire Strikes Back? He has to choose between the lives of Han and Leia and Chewbacca and the lives of thousands of people he's responsible for. Although Billy Dee Williams says that no one died. He says that every time (laughs) he's in public. I love that. I've been arguing for years, but I've never made the point that succinctly. They're like, did anybody die? No. He nailed it. Exactly. Nailed it. So, and in the prequel era, we know... You know, the Phantom Menace is where you start to see the cracks in the Republic. You know, things begin to go wrong. But obviously the weak spots were showing up before that. And so this book, you know, it takes place, the mindset is that things are going to keep going on the way they've gone on for thousands of years. Nobody has any sense that this is going to end. But, you know, I wanted to show some of the problems in the order and some of the problems in the galaxy and, you know, some flaws in the system that, you know, Qui-Gon, I think, is maybe becoming aware of before most are. I was so surprised to see a quote from Ibn Rushd, who's the Muslim philosopher who inspired people like Thomas Aquinas. And I'm actually very familiar with Ibn Rushd, and uh, he's known as Avros in the West, obviously. But he had such Mm -hmm. a... A seminal impact on not only philosophy but theology as well, and I'm mentioning theirs um, in that fashion. Well, um, it was it was interesting because you know when I was thinking about okay, this story is fundamentally about prophecy. Uh, 
you know, I started digging into things and sort of what are different takes on philosophy? What are you know, the philosophy of prophecy? What, you know, what have people traditionally thought is good about it, bad about it, how people traditionally interpreted it? And uh, through all of that searching, that quote came to mind. And the character of Rail Averroff is already named at that point. Yes. Uh, you know, I just come up with that name because I thought it sounded cool. And I was like, oh my gosh, because <laughs> <laughs> they're almost exactly the same name. And this quote is so dead on. So um, that was, I guess, a mixture of sort of digging into all the different things that prophecy could mean or that it says about us, really, that our belief in it does, uh, and serendipity. Well, let's talk about him, and it's amazing that you chose that name and happened to kind of tie into Ibn Rush's name. It's uh, I know. It's a, weird. A, very, a very interesting synergy there. But um, let's talk about Ralph for a moment, because if you read Ibn Rush's history, He's not exactly like Rao. I don't think he was <laughs> as loose <laughs> in many ways as uh-huh. as Rao is in the book. But how would you describe him? And is it fair to say he's kind of, I don't want to say the precursor to Qui-Gon, but they say you are who your friends are. So how would you describe him? Rail is an interesting character. I actually think of him less as the precursor to Qui-Gon and more as the precursor in some ways to Anakin. Mm, um, interesting. He comes from this line of master and apprentices, because there's more than one take on master and apprentice in the book. But yes. You have Yoda, Dooku, and then Dooku, we, you know, it goes Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, Anakin. But then you also have Qui-Gon's earlier apprentice, a few years older than mm-hmm. Qui-Gon, who became a knight right before Qui-Gon came on as an apprentice. And that's Rail. And Rail was found late. He was still a few years younger than Anakin, but was still found really late. And when they brought him in to the Jedi Order, they basically bent over backwards to do things differently for him. And, you know, and you have Dooku, at this time, he's still a Jedi and still very much, you know, on the side of the light. But he's always an individualist. He's always going to do, you know, he's always going to have his own mind and his own way of doing things. And so he takes on this unconventional Padawan and, despite his own sternness, takes some pride in having a Padawan who, like him, is willing to think outside of of the order, you know, willing to think in different ways. And the results are mixed. You know, Rail's a great guy in a lot of ways, but he has made some serious mistakes. He is not living the way the order tells you you're supposed to live. And unfortunately, it looks like the lesson the order drew from that is like, well, if you take a kid in late, then you shouldn't do anything differently at all. Mm-hmm. And then when Anakin comes along, you know, they basically make the opposite mistake. You know, they don't take enough exactly. consideration because uh, the idea that different individuals may have different needs, unfortunately, does not seem to be a hallmark of the Jedi of that era. Um you know, but it was interesting, like having a Jedi Knight who isn't fallen to darkness, but isn't and isn't quite a gray Jedi, but just isn't playing by the rule book. Right, just isn't. And uh, there are ways in which I think that makes him a lot of fun, and then there are ways in which that makes him kind of dangerous. But uh, it, it was an interesting character to bounce 
both Dooku and Qui-Gon, and I guess also Obi-Wan against, because all of them have a degree of formality in a way, and they all just not. (laughs) No, not at all, not at all. And I'm glad we're seeing more grace because, uh, you know, there's been this strong delineation between the dark and light, and it's always fascinating when you see the two come together, or at least meet. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. almost like that... uh, one part of the ocean i've forgotten where it is but there's a part of the ocean where you actually see the the different bodies of water the fresh and salt water come together and they don't quite meld or meet but there's this interesting inner space between the two and i always find yeah. that to kind of be the most you know fascinating of characters and also the most fascinating things in existence as well these inner spaces yeah, I've seen those images, too. I think that's a great metaphor. I may wind up borrowing it, so just FYI. <laughs> no, no worries, no worries. <laughs> well, well, that leads me to Obi-Wan again, because what's fascinating about this book, and I guess we kind of see it in Phantom Menace as well, is that Obi-Wan at the beginning is so rules-oriented, and he's kind of a stick in the mud, and then mm-hmm. you fast-forward to A New Hope, and it's all about a certain point of view. So <laughs> uh, what were you trying to show there with that transition? And obviously you can't speed it along too fast because it's not going to happen overnight. Well, one thing I wanted to get into because I felt like this was very true really about Obi-Wan is he is a very much follow the rules kind of guy, but it's not because he's like, oh, somebody told me to do this so I should do it or that he doesn't have his own initiative or belief. Mm-hmm. Like, he is a believer in the greater wisdom of the Jedi Council. You know, he's like, I believe in this organization, I believe in these individuals, and I trust to a greater knowledge than my own. And you may have been in the wrong era of the Jedi to make that decision, but it's not, you know, it's not quite the same as being a stick in the mud. I think... Uh, exactly. in, especially in sci-fi, we have a real tendency to to romanticize the renegade and assume that the person kind of following the rules is like is is more boring or more weak or something Excellent like that. Point. And really, it could take so much more strength to trust somebody else's judgment. You know, it can take it, it requires a lot of faith exactly. to hold true to a principle when, you know, it's a confused and complicated situation. And to me, that was sort of the core of Obi-Wan. And a lot of why he's freer by the time you meet him in A New Hope is that organization is gone. It's just gone. Yes. You know, nothing remains except Yoda, who is basically, you know, uh, out of it on Dagobah. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so that was sort of the framework that I wanted to set up for Obi-Wan in this book, that he has a reason for being the kind of person that he is and that it, it doesn't come from a lack of of daring or feeling. You know, for him, it's, it's just rooted in something else. Well, when it comes to transmedia, I believe that there's only – well, I put it this way. When it comes to transmedia, I only believe that stories should be told if they supplement or support – the stories that they are associated with. So you don't just tell a story just to tell a story or to make a quick buck or whatever. And I have to say this novel, just like the Clone Wars in many respects, really adds heft and weight to the prequels. And I'm a fan of the prequels already, but I became a greater fan of the Phantom Menace in particular after reading this novel. So 
given the fact that it's the 20th anniversary of Phantom Menace and we're seeing kind of a resurgence in the embrace of that film. My son loves the film. He's 12 years old. And for him, that's Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But I always dug it. I always enjoyed it. Uh, What did the Phantom Menace mean to you when you first saw it? And does it have greater resonance now? I had mixed feelings when I first saw it. I was not a person who absolutely hated it. I wasn't a person who absolutely loved it either. Um, I There were a couple things that I seized on that unfortunately didn't play out. Uh, like, for instance, I thought the whole thing with the midichlorians, I was like, well, that's going to play into how they defeat the Jedi because I always thought it was a really open question as to how you defeat, mm-hmm. you know, 10,000 psychic magic warriors like that had to be pretty tough right i thought like oh they're going to introduce some science explanation that like Mm. made it that they were able to shut it down which you know obviously that did not happen and maybe that's fine um more troublingly though like i really thought you know a lot of us i think thought when little anakin was like i'm going to come back and breathe this late you're like (laughs) oh that's going to be it yeah you know that's going to be core you know the core of why he's turning is this inaction in the face of evil and then it becomes evil itself and uh, you know that wasn't really picked up on and that was disappointing to me that said you know i loved how i loved how it looked i loved qui-gon from the get-go i thought the interaction of qui-gon and obi-wan was so interesting and you know i really seized on that and enjoyed it primarily because of those characters in that relationship so uh, you know, that's what stayed with me all this time. And so getting to write a book about that was just, you know, a dream come true, you know, from the moment that The Phantom Menace came out. Well, we're very happy that you're part of this family now. And as we head out, do you feel that you have a greater sense of responsibility, number one, in telling stories in the Star Wars universe? And number two, given the fact that you've contributed in this way, do you feel like you're part of the family now? Responsibility is kind of a loaded word. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, because um, I would say, like, the only responsibility I really feel is to tell the best story I can tell. And like you said, I, too, believe that the stories that spin off from other media should feel essential. You know, like, there's yes. a reason you're here. There's a reason you need this bit of the story. And that's something fundamental that I try to do with with every book is think of like there's a reason you need to know this there's a reason that this is critical you know this will add to your understanding of how Princess Leia becomes General Organa or what it was like to just be an Imperial officer of the line you know or in this case you know to be in the Jedi Order before it all falls apart Um, like why are we here and I feel a great responsibility to that but other than that like I really feel like the minute I start looking at the story as something weightier or more portentous than a great story that I've, I've messed up. That That's when stuff turns into pontification and stops being fun. And, you know, for this week's Star Wars, it's got to be fun. Yes, uh, of course. You know, you, you, you can't you can't lose sight of all the deeper greater stuff in that mythology but at the same time if you're only taking it mega seriously you're going to lose touch with the lightness and the humor and the play that's uh, an essential part of it again claudia gray star wars master and the apprentice or master and apprentice claudia you're always welcome back on fictional frontiers keep bringing it okay thank you so much